The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. My guest today is Ali Bohm, who's Policy Counselor at Public Knowledge. Welcome, Ali. Time to welcome this week's data guru. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. As you know, my podcast really focuses on the market research and insights space. So it's nice to have you on the show with your legal background and perspective on kind of what's going on in the industry. For our listeners, can you share a little bit about your background and what public knowledge does? So Public Knowledge is a nonprofit advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. We promote the freedom of expression in open internet and access to affordable communications tools and creative works. My background, I guess before I was at Public Knowledge, I was most directly in law school. And then before that, I worked at the ACLU doing policy work for seven years. That's amazing. You have an amazing background. I know that prior to getting on the call, your passion is to make a difference. It is. Tell us a little bit about where are we? I know we've heard in the press about the whole Cambridge Analytica situation. GDPR has definitely impacted our industry as well in terms of making sure we're abiding by those laws. What's your perspective in terms of where we are as it relates to policy about consumer privacy? So I'll sort of front load this and say, where we are is that we really need a national policy. We need a comprehensive privacy law and we don't have one. So in the absence of a comprehensive privacy law, there are a few things in place. One, there's this for lack of a better word, called the Fair Information Practice Principle. And these are principles that in the 1960s, the Department of Housing, Education, and Welfare came up with. They were influential, but they've never been codified. But they are sort of the basis of many privacy conversations, both within industry and within the policy space in the United States. And I can read through those if you'd like me to, or I can just say that, you know, folks can Google them. Well, I think the key point there is they were established in 1960, and we're still using that as the foundation for a lot of the policy that we're setting today. Is that correct? That's definitely correct. And I think, fortunately, since Facebook Cambridge Analytica, there's been some movement in the conversations on Capitol Hill. I can talk about that. So the FIPS, the Fair Information Practice Principles, never became law. The things that did become law, we have a number of sector-specific privacy laws in the United States. We have the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. You know that as HIPAA. That's, you know, the forms you sign in the doctor's office. There's the Cable Privacy Act. There's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which protects kids under the age of 13. The Video Privacy Protection Act. There's Gramm-Leach-Bliley, which has uh, some provisions about financial privacy. There's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. There's the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which covers old law dating back to 1986 that covers stored communications online and Mm -hmm. email when it's still on the provider's server and less than 180 days old. So it's a very narrow set of electronic communications that it covers. And then there's the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, the Communications Act, which has privacy rules related to phones. 
for a hot minute, there were broadband privacy rules that the FCC put in, the Federal Communications Commission put okay. into place that would have covered internet service providers. They would have prevented broadband providers from tracking the online behavior of their customers without their customers' permission and would have created clear requirements for broadband carriers to protect customers' personal information and would have required carriers to notify customers in the event of a data breach. Would have given customers more control over their personal information online, including their browsing history, app usage, and information related to finances, health, and children. Unfortunately, that was actually repealed by Congress before it ever went into effect. And then there are state laws like the mm -hmm. California Online Privacy Protection Act. And that's why you see privacy policies on websites today is because California requires them. But for anything that doesn't fall into one of those sector-specific laws, and remember, we don't have the broadband privacy rules, we're left with is the Federal Trade Commission's analog era Section 5 authority, which allows them to police unfair or deceptive practices. And, you know, and I'd say this is a very old law. This is like the law that makes sure that, you know, tennis shoes and manufactured goods are up to snuff. It was, it was not created for the internet age, but the FTC has been creative about using it here. So for something to be deceptive, it literally means you have to not know about it. So if you were, say, Grinder. I think a lot of folks were angry when it turned out that Grinder was sharing its users' HIV status with a couple of other companies. That was probably not deceptive. Mm -hmm. Then for unfairness, there has to be substantial harm, and that has to be a legally cognizable harm. So we're already narrowing the universe of what those harms are. You're really looking at like, was there economic loss? Was someone injured? And that harm must not be reasonably avoidable. And in many cases, it is. You don't want Facebook to share your information with Cambridge Analytica? Don't go on Facebook. And that harm must not be outweighed by countervailing benefits to consumers or to competition. So to sort of give you an example, sure. Facebook will say, because we're going to pick on Facebook, oh, well, you know, we are collecting and sharing your information, but it's outweighed by countervailing benefits to consumers. You're getting this free service. And public policy considerations can't serve as the primary basis there. So it's not, so the FTC is not able to say, yeah, but actually you're sharing a lot of information about a lot of people and making them vulnerable. And, you know, that we have a public policy concern about that. That's not enough. So that's the, the world that we're in now. And every time the FTC tries to use its unfairness authority, the courts and Congress sort of hem that authority in even more narrowly. So the, the agency is really reluctant to use that authority. So we, okay. we get down to the FTC is really only has this unfairness authority. And that's the world we live in today. Has anything changed as a result of GDPR as within the United States? or And if it hasn't, why hasn't it? I think a couple of things have changed. Probably many of your listeners have noticed a deluge of privacy policy emails. <laughs> and that is because many of the companies are starting to comply with GDPR. Many of the companies feel pressure to implement some of those systems in the United States as well, because they're, you know, looking at Mark Zuckerberg getting dragged before Congress um, and saying, oh, we, you know, we, we should do something. And so it has moved the needle in terms of voluntary compliance. But remember, this is voluntary compliance. So unlike in Europe, where your data protection authority can come after you if you're a company and you don't follow GDPR, in the United States, it's by the good graces of the companies, whatever they decide to do. The other place where GDPR has moved the needle is in the federal policy debate. So 
we have a regime now in, in Europe where there needs to be informed consent for data collection and use. Europeans have to be able to opt out of direct marketing and they have the right to access personal data and to data portability. They have the right to delete personal data and the right to be forgotten, which probably doesn't comport with Americans' First Amendment rights. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. <laughs> and companies are required to employ privacy by design and there are data breach notification rules. But all of these things being in effect in Europe means that if you are a big company that exists in Europe or a small company that exists in Europe and the United States, you're figuring out how to do these things. And so there's no longer the talking point on Capitol Hill of, oh, well, we can't do this. It's just going to kill the industry. Well, it's not going to kill the industry. Facebook, Google, Etsy, I'm trying to think of some smaller players, yep. you know, are still yeah. alive and They're well in, in Europe. So, and I, and I do think it's worth saying that a lot of this hasn't been worked out yet. There's right. going to be regula regulatory action in Europe. There are already cases pending to figure out what GDPR means. So some of it are still unknown or you know, sort of known unknowns. But I do think it moves the needle as far as what is plausible on Capitol Hill. Americans are really starting to ask, hey, Europeans have these rights. Why don't we? Do you feel consumers, Americans, passionately care about their privacy? And are you seeing more of a movement from that perspective? Or are you still seeing or hearing about consumers being, I don't know, for lack of a better word, uninformed or lackadaisical about reading the privacy policies and understanding truly where their information is going? It's complicated, right? right? Americans don't speak with one voice. And that's probably a good probably. thing. It's unreasonable to expect Americans to read privacy policies. If, according to a Carnegie Mellon study, if you read all of the privacy policies you encountered in a year, it would take you 76 workdays. Nobody's right. got that kind of time. Very few people have that kind of time. So just because folks are not reading it doesn't mean they don't care. Second of all, companies are taking advantage of the fact that they know that no one reads those privacy policies. To bury things in there, we would never agree to if the privacy policies were like a comprehensible length. And again, that keeps them from being deceptive, right? Yes. The second point is, you know, I think the outrage that you've seen, and it's not just post-Facebook Cambridge Analytica. I mean, Facebook Cambridge Analytica broke in March, and it's what, the end of June. We're still right. talking about it. That's true. That's a long time, especially mm -hmm. in this world of pick your political crisis or your humanitarian crisis of the week. They seem to move very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a sign. But also, you know, I pulled, when you and I met at uh, ARS Forum, I had pulled news articles going back to, you know, the early 2000s, the, mm -hmm. you know, really nascent years of Facebook, of every time Facebook changed their interface to be less privacy protective, the consumer outrage. Right. And then I think the other piece is there's, a, you know, there's polling out there. There's studies that say that more than 92% of Facebook users choose to change their privacy settings. So that means that those 92% of people are saying, yeah, I share information on Facebook, but I think I'm controlling what audience I'm sharing that information with. And I want to control what audience I'm sharing that information with. Posting, you know, if you post a baby picture, you may want to share it with your friends and family you may not want to share it with the world. You may not want to share it with your employer, right? Like there's, we limit our audiences on these social networks and that's because we care about privacy. So I think that there is certainly good reason to believe that consumers don't understand everything that's technologically feasible right. and all of the company's practices. You know, I've certainly had friends who've been like, I don't understand. I looked for this thing on Amazon and now everywhere I go on the internet, I'm having advertisements for, you know, Nike shoes. Folks don't understand what's technologically possible. And I think folks feel powerless, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I need to be on 
Twitter for work, or I need to be on Facebook because that's how my family communicates and I need to keep in touch with people who live states away or countries away. That's sympathetic. That doesn't mean they don't care. They may care deeply. They may just feel that they don't have any other alternatives. That's definitely the case. I think people are on a lot of these social media channels for exactly what you just cited. I mean, Twitter for work, enhancing brand and kind of amplifying your voice. And then Facebook, I hear quite often, it's it's a way for them to stay in touch with relatives across the globe. So, and it's almost kind of the use and the acceptance of these platforms, it does feel isolating if you're not on them to communicate with friends and family. So it is, to your point, it feels as if there's no other options. That's absolutely right. I'm curious, what do you think Congress should do to protect privacy in the digital age? So there are a few things. The first one is having meaningful notice and consent. And by that, I mean, the notice and consent needs to be granular and specific, and it needs to be in a way that people can read and digest and you need opt-in consent. So it can't be the consent that's the notice is buried in the 40, you know, the fine right. print of a 40 page privacy policy. But let's bring out the terms. Let's use pictures. Let's make it fit on one, you know, iPhone screen or one Android screen. Give it to folks in ways they can understand. And GDPR has done some interesting, I mean, again, we'll yeah. see how it works in practice, but they have some interesting requirements there that may be worth, you know, seeing how they work and if they might work here and making the, the opt-in granular. So yes, you can use my information to perform the service requested. You can use it for first party marketing, but I don't want you to sell it to third parties or you can keep my information for two years and use it for research and development. But after two years, you probably don't need it for research and development anymore. So why don't you delete it? Or I'd like it to be used for research, but not for advertising. Or, hey, I don't actually want you to use my data at all, except for the, you know, purposes of the transaction. So, you know, if I've ordered something on Amazon, Amazon should use my credit card. And I want to step back because I know that you're, there there are a bunch of advertisers and marketers listening to this. We're probably thinking that's a revolutionary idea. As I've talked through this issue with a number of people, both in advocacy space and the, you know, sort of privacy community, but also like normal humans, I've heard many passionate defenses of targeted advertising from normal humans who say, hey, you know, I actually really like targeted advertising because it saves me time. Mm -hmm. I understand I'm going to see advertising, so I might as well see advertising for things I am interested in rather than seeing advertising that is completely irrelevant. So I don't, I think it is a false trade-off. I don't think that folks are going to wholesale opt out of targeted advertising. And I also think there are a lot of ways we target advertising. Mm -hmm. So yes, Facebook, you know, pools its demographic information and can say, you know, I'm going to show blue lawnmowers to people where I know that, you know, it's summertime and they have lawns and they really like the color blue, this part of the country where the store is. But up until that, we've had in broadcast television in, you know, the way that Amazon does ads or Google does ads, contextual advertising. You know, Mm -hmm. someone said, I am searching for a lawnmower. So you showed them lawnmower ads. And it's not clear that that advertising is, is less, at least as far as I've heard, is less effective than the, than the micro-targeted advertising that, that Facebook does based on behavioral data. So I think that that's, I really think it's important to emphasize, I don't think this is going to kill the advertising industry. I think the other piece is ensuring that folks who do obtain consumer data and do keep it and do store it are meeting the highest state-of-the-art security standards. And that's because if you are going to be stewards of our information, you should be keeping it safe. And, you know, that's important for brand safety as well, right? You don't want to be the next Equifax or the next Orbitz had a data breach. Lord and Taylor had a data breach. That's, that's, nobody wants to be in that position. Some of that is 
incorporating privacy by design and by default. Some of that is incorporating data minimization, saying, hey, you know, I don't actually need this data to do what it is that my company does, so I'm going to get rid of it. And then the last piece is having meaningful redress. So ensuring that consumers are able to vindicate their rights and be made whole again if their data is accessed in an unauthorized way, whether that's something like Cambridge Analytica, where it was shared in ways that consumers did not expect, or whether that's something like Equifax, that was a data breach. And do you see a world where these things will evolve and we will be able to abide by these three different standards that you've defined in terms of protecting the privacy of consumers, but also, you know, not quote unquote killing business? I think they will. I mean, I think that there are robust conversations going on now. Now, part of the challenge is the way the legislative process is extraordinarily slow. So it's, it's very rare to see a bill that's introduced, you know, in this Congress for the first time ever passed in this Congress. Typically, mm-hmm. bills are introduced over multiple Congresses, marked up, they're, they have hearings, they're negotiated, and then eventually they pass. And so we're sort of seeing new problems now that we didn't anticipate. I think it used to be that we would talk about sensitive information and we meant your bank account number, your social security number, your first and last name, your credit card information. That wasn't the information that was useful in, in Cambridge Analytica, right? They right. were interested in what you liked and who you were connected to and what you posted, which probably was never content, or I shouldn't say which was never contemplated, which wasn't contemplated by a lot of the privacy legislation, privacy bills that were out there in the world. They also, you know, Cambridge Analytica was not a data breach. Dr. Kogan accessed Facebook's data perfectly, lawfully, in a perfectly authorized way. It was given to him. Got it from Facebook. It was given to him. He had, you know, he had a research agreement and then he used it in a way that was inappropriate, but it wasn't a data breach. (laughs) He didn't sneak into their systems and (laughs) grab that data. And so we're finding that Congress is having to come up with new language and figure out problems that they never had to figure out before. You know, how do you, if you are a website and you you have a relationship with your users who have accounts, but what about people who don't have accounts? I mean, Google and Twitter and Facebook and half a dozen sites I've never heard of all have, you know, like buttons or share buttons on websites all over and they're tracking people who go to those websites. Some of the folks they track are not users of their sites. So they have a relationship with folks who don't have accounts on their sites. How do you handle that? It almost feels like the industry and being that it's technology is moving at such a faster rate than what Congress can actually handle. It almost feels like there's a little bit of an imbalance here in terms of how fast things are moving. I know that you also work on artificial intelligence type things and obviously this area as well. But then you talk about bills taking multiple Congresses or multiple years to pass. Do you find that that might change over time just to be able to keep pace with what's happening in the industry? I don't think the pace of Congress legislating is going to change. And frankly, set up to make it hard to pass legislation because mm-hmm. the framers were worried about proposals that were not well thought out becoming law. There is this other thing. And, you know, it's sort of become a toxic concept on the Hill. I think it shouldn't be. So what Congress has done well in the past and what Congress should continue to do is Congress gives regulatory agencies rulemaking authority. And those agencies then are able to keep pace with technology. And so they can move, they have public comment, 
And anytime they want to make a rule, they have to have public input and they have to actually meaningfully respond to that input. So it's not this these unelected bureaucrats make rules. It's like these bureaucrats follow Congress's instructions, come up with a proposal, farm that out to the public and the public gets time to respond. And then they have to respond to the public's comments and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, in response to these comments, we're going to change this part of the proposal or, hey, we got these comments and they said we were doing awesome. So we're going to, you know, make this into a final rule. So in some ways, it's an even more direct democracy because they have to get public comments and and respond. But they're often expert, right? Because if you go to work at the Federal Communications Commission, you probably know something about communications. That's what you're going to be working on. As distinguished from Congress, where you're a generalist, you're working on privacy and technology, but you're also working on immigration and infrastructure and judges and science and technology. Whereas an agency is specialized, it gets experts in the issue area who really can keep up with the technology. Again, you know, assuming that you're properly staffed and properly resourced, and they have the ability to engage in rulemaking to keep pace with technology. If they have the ability to engage in rulemaking, the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have the ability to engage in rulemaking. So all it can use is Section 5. We need an agency that can engage in rulemaking and can say, hey, you know, now companies are using data in ways that we never anticipated. What do we need to do to protect consumers? And then put those out as clear rules so that the industry and consumers know what to expect. They can plan. My answer is is rulemaking authority. That's how we deal with keeps the technology. That's what I wanted to make sure I was clear on. Currently, that does not occur today. You're saying let's empower some of these agencies that are specialized in areas and give them authority to create some rules for these specific areas. So this is not like Ali's new idea out of whole cloth. Communications Commission, for example, has rulemaking authority. That's how they created the broadband privacy rules that then Congress overturned, but the Federal Trade Commission doesn't, and it varies agency by agency. They have rulemaking authority and how broad that rulemaking authority is. So this isn't a new concept. It's a concept that's gone, I think, out of fashion, but I think it's really, really important, particularly in areas like technology, where the pace of change is just so rapid and Congress is not designed to keep up, and also where the issues are so technical and wonky that Congress doesn't have the requisite expertise, nor frankly, should they have to have the requisite expertise. But there are agency folks who are specialized in these things who should and do have the requisite expertise and probably are better situated to figure out the appropriate roles. So Elliot, I know we've talked a lot about privacy. I'm curious, another area that you're working on is artificial intelligence. Can you just give our listeners some of the topics are factored in to policy as it relates to artificial intelligence? I know that's such a broad question, but just to share some of the perspectives that you're seeing and kind of working on. So my organization is really at the beginnings of getting involved in artificial intelligence. But I think there's a balance, as with most issues, but with artificial intelligence, there's this innovation is happening. And how do we deal with safety in the context of innovation, whether that's, you know, like physical safety, if you're talking about, you know, self-driving cars, how do we make sure they don't crash into people? 
or if there's going to be an accident, who do they choose? You know, do they crash into the pedestrian? Do they crash into the car? Do they crash into the rail? You know, do they prioritize the person in the car's safety or the person who's on the street's safety, right? All of those are questions we need to answer. But there's also, how do we deal with the fact that, how do we deal with automated decision-making and algorithmic bias? So it used to be, or, you know, it frequently is, the, the decision is made by some human and the human can say, here's why, you know, made these decisions. Well, increasingly, we're turning to machines making decisions. And can the machines spit out, here are the factors that led me to believe that this was a blueberry muffin, not a dog. You should Google blueberry muffin dog. There's some wonderful images of <laughs> machines being rather confused about which one is which. But then take it into more important areas where artificial intelligence is used in risk assessments for recidivism and factored into bond decisions. What level is this person going to be able to make get out on bail or not? And how high is that bail? Or parole decisions. That really affects people's lives. We sure. don't know the inputs, then how do we trust the output? And then I think the other piece is how are these these systems are engaged in sort of deep learning where you give them a training data set and then say, you know, figure it out. And the machine learns. Well, what does that mean? Many of these training data sets are, so like in the facial recognition context, the machines are pretty good at recognizing white men because right. the training data sets are usually like politicians. They're really bad at recognizing black women. That's yeah. a problem. So, you know, what is your what is your training data set? What are the, you know, then there's this fear sort of going back to the, the criminal justice system. There's this idea that, oh, well, you know, it was made, the decision was made by a machine. The machine can't be biased. Well, if the machine is told that is given all of the data from the criminal justice system, data set is biased. Right, I mean, that data course. set reflects systematic racism. But because a machine is doing it, it may in some ways become more insidious because it may be less acknowledged. And right. so I think there are there are incredible opportunities for what artificial intelligence makes possible. There are some really hard policy decisions about how do we train how do we train the artificial intelligence? What transparency do we have? Because, you know, there's your algorithm. Well, is that a trade secret, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. what does that raise if I'm saying, well, I, I want algorithmic transparency that someone? There's a lot of issues in that space to say nothing of, you know, what does it mean for the future of work and which jobs are being automated away? So there's a potpourri of issues, if you will, within that space. Well, Ali, thank you so much for being with me today. I feel like we could talk for another three hours. There's definitely not a dearth of topics. There's many topics to discuss and I'd love to have you back in the future. I'd be happy to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.